0: Father, we're aware uh, nearly all the time of how things are different. There's been loss, loss of relationship, of normalcy. Uh, there's been loss of, of joy, I'm sure, for some people, maybe loss of peace. But I'm grateful for your presence and the way that you provide in the middle of it. I thank you, God, for the generosity of people toward our church. We thank you for all of the, the creative ways that we still can be connected. I pray that you'd help us to be good stewards, help us to not give way to anxiety or fear. That all that you have given, that we'd have eyes to see all of the grace in the world still, all the things that you've given, and we want to be good stewards. I pray individually in our families, in our homes, that you would help us to steward the things you've given, the time we have, the positions we have, whether as friends or siblings or as parents or as spouses. Help us to Steward well the jobs that you've given us, whatever measure of new difficulty has been introduced, that we would not be fearful in those things, but we would take each day and each moment that you've given and we'd be faithful. We give ourselves to you now. We ask that as we've read the Bible or as we consider the Bible, that we would learn and that you would be kind to us uh, in, in teaching. We are your disciples. We're your learners. We're your followers, your students. So teach us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes people use little uh, phrases to describe how old you are or how long something has been. I heard one recently, you know, somebody said that if they made Back to the Future Now, they would get in a time machine and they would go all the way back to the year 1990, which is just a, a stab in the heart for someone like me I grew, grew up, you know, late 80s-ish. Um, and I know that for some of you, you probably don't remember that far back, you know, that far back. But I want to add one more thing uh, to something that helps you remember how the passing of time. Uh, here's how long we've been in quarantine. Ready? Or how we're... we're not in quarantine. I don't know what you call this. What are we in? This world? Strange world? How long this has been going on? It's this long. Since this thing started, we began, and now today are going to finish an entire sermon series in a book of the Bible. Now, most of the time, this takes us a good five years to get through a book of the Bible. It's been slightly less than that for now, but nonetheless, I cannot believe that I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to read through and get through the end of this book, about a week or so into this experience of pandemic. I was reading through, and I remember coming to the first, you know, verses of 1 Peter and thinking, you know what, this is hope in the midst of suffering and difficulty, The book begins with the hope of the resurrection that's enduring, and we were coming up on Easter, and we thought this would be a great book to to just rest in for a little while, just for a little bit, for these next two to three weeks, as we have to deal with this uncertainty. And I'm not sure that I would have been convinced at the time that we would finish it out in this manner, but here we are. So, with that stirring, inspirational introduction, I want to invite you to go to the fifth verse of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, verse 5, and I'm going to read down through the end of the book because we are, in many ways, putting a bow on this letter that Peter wrote to those who were suffering, those who felt out of place, those who felt strange, not at home. He's written to them. This is the fifth verse of 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. I'm going to pray in a moment that God helps us to see truth in these words. I do want to give you a, a bit of consolation right up front for those of you who are worried. Uh, It is our goal always to obey and to listen to Scripture. In fact, our theology tells us that it is Scripture alone that is the final rule and authority for all practice of the church, and I just want to tell you right up front that we are not going to force an application of greeting one another with a kiss of love. Not only because that's fallen out of practice and many of you would think it was weird, but we would go to jail for that kind of thing right now. So we're not going to do that, even though you might be hankering for and think to yourself, we need to restore practices like this. Now does not seem like the time. You probably weren't worried about it, but I want to say up front, I'm not going to come to the end of this sermon and say, therefore, stand up, face one another, and pray. You know what I'm saying? Okay, we won't do that. I do want, though, to ask God to help us to apply these words the best that we possibly can, so let's just take a moment and and be humble. Let's be humble and realize that we're not up to this task We need God's Spirit. Let's pray. Spirit of God, you are here. You're in our midst. You indwell us. You're our guarantee of hope and life in Christ. And so I pray, Spirit of God, would you move us to have these not just be words on a page, but to listen to them, to have them stir us, to grow us in humility, to help us to stand firm, cast our anxieties on you. We We want to put these things into practice, not to be merely about an intellectual exercise. We're not passing the time here. We're trying to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so we pray that you would help us with that, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We want to be attentive from our hearts. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's time. I don't know what it's time for, but that means it it's time. First Peter chapter 5, if I had to summarize what he's going to end with, he's writing to people who are facing persecution and reviling, and I'll just say it as plainly as possible. Many of them know that in the days to come, they will be killed for their faith in Christ. They're facing death. So when we say that there's suffering, I'm just putting that in perspective, that's the kind of suffering they mean. It means if I continue on like I am right now, I will probably die. And he's going to give them the best advice that he can give them. He's going to summarize for them, if you find yourself in uncertain times, in difficult times, what ought you to do? And I'm going to summarize it, and I think that the the banner that he's going to place over living like that, how do you live in a time like that? Here's the the phrase, and I think this is what we're going to see. Humbly stand firm. Humbly stand firm. That seems to be the thing that he's going to press forward. Humbly stand firm. And as I read this and consider it, it, I'm reminded of a story. I already mentioned the, the 80s when I grew up, and I'm going to tell a story that happened in the 80s. Now, some of you can't remember that far back. Uh, I think it was Brian who was informing me that uh, when he's trying to pray for or build relationships or care for college students in our midst, that I was reminded of the unbelievable fact. Do you know that there are functioning adults in our city, people who can drive and vote, and they're going to college, functioning adults who were not alive when 9-11 happened? Did you know this is real? It's terrifying. It's not terrifying. It's either terrifying because they're actually adults or it's terrifying that I'm really that old to think, wow, I can't remember. I was in college. I remember driving to class when that took place. These people not born. And they're here and they're in our midst. So some of you don't remember the 80s, but I'm going to tell you a little story of something that happened in the 80s. In the mid to late 80s, and I wasn't aware of this either, of course. I was a tiny child and didn't know denominational intrigue. But in the mid-80s, there was a seminary that for decades had been embroiled in a battle over the time. It had been embroiled in a battle over truth, over an understanding of the Bible. Is the Word of God the authoritative and final say? Can it be trusted in its original manuscripts? Or should there be interpretation that goes beyond what Scripture has said? Is the grace of God to be found in our growing and progressive understanding of what Jesus would have said if He knew what we knew? And this kind of battle and slide had been going on for decades in a particular seminary denomination, and there was an outcry, a sort of a stirring in many of the faculty there and many of the stakeholders in the seminary to say, we need to go back and we need to say we're going to teach from the Bible in the way that our denomination and our people and Christians through the ages have taught from Scripture. And there was a new president, a young president, who was voted in to take over the seminary. And knowing full well that he would make sweeping changes, both to faculty and culture and to class content, there were active and ongoing protests of this president. In fact, at his inauguration speech, there were times when students walked out or stood and turned their backs upon hearing him speak. And the thing that was being spoken of was to simply go back to remember and to stand firm on the truth of Scripture. And I remember the title, the title of this inauguration speech from a young new seminary president who was facing backlash over these things in uncertain times and a lot of turmoil in the midst of this organization. The title of this inaugural speech given by a new president was this don't just do something, stand there. Of course, a play on words, and you know the phrase, it's normally flipped. Don't just stand there, do something. Now, the title of the speech was not to reject the idea that we should do something. Of course, Christians should be a force for good in the world. It needs to be an active thing. But he was reminding them that the first principles, our identity of who we are, is mainly about standing firm in what we've been given as promises and what we have in Christ. And so he said to them, don't simply be busybodies who are about doing whatever you want. Don't just do something. Stand there. And it's that idea, I think, that Peter is telling those who are under persecution and difficulty. He's telling them, now humbly, under the hand of God, don't just frenetically run around. Don't try to make your own salvation. Don't be so anxious. Humble yourself and stand there. There is a joy, a strength, a power in a restful, firm standing in convictions despite a swirling world around you that ultimately brings deliverance. That's the message that Peter is giving to the church. So I'm going to walk through these verses and I'm going to attempt to explain the best I can how is it that Peter is encouraging them One, to be humble, and then two, to stand firm. What does that look like as he describes it? He opened verse 5 using the word likewise, and he's used that a couple times already in uh, in this letter. It essentially means under the same category but a different group of people. Likewise, you who are younger, he tells them to be subject to the elders, and he just told the elders to lead with humility. And he knows that in order for this relationship to work, he's going to have to encourage everyone to a particular disposition of heart. And so, I believe that there ought to be, or there could be, a big gap between the end of the first part of verse 5, likewise be subject to the elders, and I believe there's kind of a deep breath here. And I just want to remind you, I'm not critiquing the Bible or the Word of God. All of our verses and all of the ways the paragraphs are separated with little titles in our fancy Bibles, this was all brought about in like the 17th century. When Peter is writing, moved along, he's he's dictating likely to Sylvanus, either Sylvanus writing or him at least delivering it, he's writing them a letter And they're written together without, in many ways, punctuation or paragraphs the way we would have known. And I think that what happens in the middle of verse 5 is he takes a step back and he's going to now begin to, rather than addressing individual groups, he's thinking about Christianity as a whole. Anyone who calls themselves a Christian is going to listen to his words. He's saying, man, how is this going to work How are you going to withstand difficulty when the tensions are high and everyone's tempted to grasp for themselves? How is this going to work? And so he gives them this command, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And here is, of course, where I get, I believe, his his final command, the people who are in difficult spots. Here's what you should do. Grow in humility. And I want to do my best from what he's written and elsewhere in the Bible to comment for a little bit on, well, what does it mean by humility? I think often when we think of a humble person, or at least in culture, it could be tempting to think of a humble person who has learned to think of themselves differently. In other words, a pride person who thinks of themselves constantly, they think of themselves as great. And the kind of person who carries himself in the world who basically thinks, I am a blessing and I am a gift to who anyone in any place that I ever enter. You can imagine that kind of pride, right? Like someone walks in and their immediate air is just like, everyone, start thanking me. I'm here. Everyone knows that kind of pride. And it could be tempting to say to, them, to, say to yourself, well, here's what you need to do to combat pride. You need to think of yourself not as awesome, but you need to start thinking of yourself as terrible and bad. Here is the way the Bible describes humility. This is the key little phrase humility toward one another. Humility at its core is not simply changing the way you think about yourself, it is losing yourself altogether. The key to humility is stop thinking so much about yourself. You're not being a humble person to rather than entering into a room with an air about you that says everyone thank me. You have not changed and moved on to humility by entering into a room and with an air that basically says everyone don't look at me, I'm terrible. I need help. You still can be proud, and I think this is clear when you get to the point of anxieties, you can still be proud by being self-focused on how bad you are. You know that you've gotten to humility, what I'm going to call the freedom of humility. You know you've gotten to that point when you're able to think of others. This is how Philippians chapter 2 puts it. They're not on the screen, but if you want to look at it, the first half of Philippians chapter 2 is a wonderful foundational understanding of humility but know what Paul says. This is what humility looks like. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The first step away from pride and toward humility is the ability to recognize and count others. You become awakened to the reality. Wait, other people have problems and needs? Wait, other people have feelings? Wait, other people exist? It is movement toward the other, love outward, that is the true mark that you've got to the point of freedom, of humility. It is the gift of giving up yourself and a constant striving to be something, living in the trap, living in the constant jail of needing to know what people think of you, or fighting constantly wondering, how do I think about myself? Humility, the gift of God in humility the freedom of humility comes when you are freed of that and you're able to notice and see and love others. Wouldn't this kind of thing be transformative in our world? This is what humility looks like in the Bible. He says in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 2, in humility count others more significant than yourselves, and then he summarizes it more, more practically in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Be humble, he says. And humility, it turns out, now he's going to get to the point that humility is definitely vertical. Ultimately, the greatest humility we need is to be humble in fear of the Lord. But he tells them that humility, true humility, is going to impact the way that they interact with others. So, isn't it odd how easily you can detect pride in other people but not yourself? Isn't it amazing how pride can explode relationships and communities? You will never ever find, and Peter knows this, you will never ever find a functioning, loving, caring, interconnected community of people where pride is left unchecked. No one ever says, I love being a part of that group. Every person is so proud all the time. They're looking out for them. Humility is what it's going to take. Humility is the gift we can offer to the world. Humility, just a a sniff of it, a whiff of it, is freeing grace to a world entrapped in sin. And ultimately, one of the worst consequences of sin is an inability to get past oneself. This, Peter says, is going to be the key to your community. For, and this is the part where, so if I say that humility is both horizontal and vertical, I I get it from here. For, and every time you see the word for in the Bible, you can usually write the word because, because it flows out of this. This is one of the most definitive and terrifying but wonderfully hopeful verses or sections of the whole Bible for this. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Imagine all the things we don't know about God. Isn't, that's actually a, a paradox. It's impossible to do. You can't imagine it because you, you don't even know. It's why, it's why Paul sometimes in his praise of God just says, You're inexhaustible. I, I can't even imagine all that you are that we don't know. So imagine all that we don't know about God all of the ways that he's worked, all of the mystery that he's shrouded in. There's plenty of mystery, and for all of the mystery, this is something that remains not mysterious. Who does God oppose? Who does He work against? Who does God get up to correct? The proud. Of all the sins in the world, it is pride that gets Satan kicked from heaven. Of all the things that we find here, as clear commands in the Bible, we know this. God opposes the proud. It's likely that Peter is quoting here, and James also quotes similarly, from the third chapter of Proverbs. And there, at least in the ESV, it's translated interestingly. It says, toward the scorners, He is scornful. God sees a scornful, proud person, and He is scornful in return. So, I don't know how much more clear to make this. If you desire to be a person who has spiritual maturity in life, who says, I know who I am, and I'm making progress in this world. Here's something you cannot leave unchecked. Here is evidence of stage four cancer. Here is the worst soul-killing thing to leave. Well, I'm working on a whole bunch of stuff, but pride is, is just, I'm just letting that hang out for a while. If it is described of you, if your best friends, if your family, if those who love you would say of you, you are unbelievably proud You think of yourself most often. It's difficult for you to see the perspective of others. You cannot be corrected. You are inward only. And even the good actions that you do seem to be simply pragmatic to boost your position in the world. If this is said of you, I don't know how much more terror I can give you than to say that God opposes you in such a condition. This isn't a minor problem. This isn't like a, well, nobody's perfect. This is soul killing. Pride must be killed because God opposes pride. Pride is the temptation to believe that you and your circumstances and your glory and your needs and your name are of utmost importance in the world. This means that ultimately worship starts when we find humility. Proud worship of God is the thing that Jesus hated and and absolutely ridiculed the most of anything. He reserves his harshest critique for proud worship in the Bible because Jesus knows something. It doesn't exist. This means that we must resist any temptation to use. Here's the funny thing about pride. It's so sneaky. A proud person... Because they want to win, they can figure out how to use humility to get ahead. And what is being pressed here is to remind people, no, 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 no. You don't use humility because you figured out the system and it allows you like you read a Dale Carnegie book. Well, you know, I'm humble because it helps me to win friends and influence people. No, we need to be humble because it is the prerequisite to confidence before God and true love of one another. There is no confidence before God and there is no actual love of others if we do not find in ourselves the fruit, the life-giving freedom of real humility. I don't know how much stronger to say it. The first Four words of this quotation that Peter mentions in 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud, are some of the most terrifying words in the universe. Mainly because I know I am a proud person. I know how prone I am to self-focus and selfishness. How often I've been tempted to enjoy the failings of others because I knew it would make me look better. How often I've competed in a one-upsmanship. How often I've played religion because I was good at it. God opposing the proud is a terrifying prospect. I have good news for you. The Bible insists again and again and again and again whenever things are most stark, the gospel will bring you to a place where you have to admit your pride. Where in the middle of your sin, in the middle of your confession, if you truly are to love one another, you're just going to eventually have to come to them and say, here's the deal. I was mean to you and wrong because I don't care about you. I care about me. That's how stark pride needs to be addressed. It's just that blatant sometimes. And here's the wonderful thing about the Bible. It brings you to a point where you have to admit that God not only approaches the proud, but you are proud. And every time you get to that place where it seems like all is hopeless and like, well, what well, we might as well give up. The devil himself gets kicked out of heaven. We don't have much hope. Here's what the Bible does. It throws in but. Over and over and over again. But. And so, this phrase is as hopeful as it is devastating. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So if we find by the Spirit's help In the midst of our circumstances, if we somehow find an ability to get over ourselves, to get beyond ourselves, to love one another well, God can actually give grace to the humble. This is hope. This is a wonderful mystery. God does give grace to the humble. And so then Peter does the most no-brainer, duffing in all of the world. In verse 6 he says, and he, he calls of all who would read, remember he says, close yourselves, all of you, Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore. Humble yourselves. Under the mighty hand of God This is this picture of God's hand being out. And the funny thing about God's hand in the Bible sometimes is that it seems like sometimes God's hand is like this. Like it's a hand of kind of wrath and you come underneath it. And then other times it's like an open hand like this and we crawl into it. But our positioning around and in God's hand is what He's calling us to be here. And in this case, the idea of... It's God's hand in a ruling hand, like of a scepter. And we ought to humble ourselves under His hand so that at the proper time He may exalt you. The key in any moment of life, but especially in difficult circumstances, is to humble ourselves under God's hand. So if there's one bit of thing that could be tempting, and that is to use humility as a way to show that we're better than others, which ruins the whole thing anyway. There's an additional test to let us know whether or not we're using humility, and that is, are we patient? Humility is patience, and I get that from verse 6. Notice this phrase. I think we would have rather it. Wouldn't we have rather the Bible said something like this? What if it said, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that immediately God will exalt you? The moment you humble yourself, all of your circumstances change and you're raised up, and all the things go away. Wouldn't everyone at least somehow kind of wish? But here's the tricky part Pride will tell you, pride will beckon to you, pride will whisper, Your humility's not even working. It's not even working. Look how patient you're having to be. How can you keep loving other people and thinking out for them? You're not even exalted. You keep having to get low. What are you waiting for? God's not there. But Peter tells them, no, no, this is how this works. You humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, trusting. This is what trusting means in the the final equation. What trusting means is to place yourself under God's care and let Him figure out the details, including the time. This phrase, the proper time, it's a Greek word, kairos. One of my mentors from back in the day did our marriage vows. He joined an organization called Kairos where they encouraged and discipled young people. Like, this, this was the time. This was the proper time, the right time. Here's the difficulty. We don't know the Kairos. God's timing is in His perfect will and we don't know. It's the reason that Jesus both taught us to pray and He Himself prayed things Basically, like God willing. God, if you will, in your timing. Humility has the patience to know that God's timing is better than ours. We don't humbly come to God and suggest a course of action and the date on the calendar when He must move. And this is super, super, super difficult. We've been trying to buy a building for Midtown for like four plus years. And God's timing is, is, uh, is interesting. It's different than my timing. It takes humility and patience to say at the proper time, He may exalt you. Now, here's the thing that's amazing is these people reading this, we might just say to ourselves, like, well, the suffering I'm enduring, the proper time is whenever the vaccine comes or the proper time is whenever I finish school. The vaccine, not the vaccine, why do I keep saying the vaccine? Look at what I want. You know what I want? I want a vaccine, I guess. It's like a subconscious moment came out. I also listened to a wonderful, wonderful show last week that described the history of vaccines and how they're made, and it's unbelievable. So maybe that's coming out as well. You know that it comes from the word for cow? Yeah, it does. So anyway, that's an aside, and now you won't listen to another word I say because you're all going to Google things, and please don't do that. What you are waiting for in the timing? of things what you think you need right now is probably slightly different what the early church what these people who are reading Peter's letter is what it turns out for them is they might say you know what the right time is when i'm dead the reality of life in christ is that you will not get everything that your heart has been designed for everything you desire everything you long for until glory is brought in that is the ultimate right right time Now, God is present with us in the meantime, and we can pray that there's minor timings or minor changes now, but it's true humility that says, God, I trust you all the way to the end. I know the inheritance I have in you. We're going to get to that later in 1 Peter 5 when he says we've been called to an eternal glory in Christ. I think he partly uses that eternal because it's big and amazing and wow, but he also says eternal to remind them, maybe don't look for it here temporally. The point is, be humble. Be humble. Here's some of the ways that we can be humble. One of the applications of verse 7, cast your anxieties on him. Do you ever think about how prideful worry is? I know better. God's not getting it right. I know all the circumstances. I know how people will act. I know how this will go. Again, pride is a sneaky thing. It has many forms. It's not just the proud person who says, I never worry, I got this. You can be just as proud being paralyzed by fear, constantly believing that you know how things will go or perhaps constantly believing that God is getting it wrong. And so he says, here's an application of humility. Cast your anxieties on him, all of them, because he cares for you. You can rest. You're safe with him. This would be a humble prayer life. You ever tried to make a list of and actually name your anxieties? Some of you are anxious just hearing me say that. Like, why would I do that? Are you kidding me? This is terrible. But here's the reality. Some of us are so caught up in the midst of worries and of fears. It's such a jumble of emotion in our souls. We can't even name the things. I mean, here would be a good exercise. You can just write this down for your journaling time later or whatever you have. You ever just taken some time before God and prayed and and thought to yourself, I'm going to write a list of questions. What am I fearful of? Why am I fearful? What do I think that I've lost? What am I afraid I'll never gain? Maybe more painfully, why am I so worried that I won't win? Why am I anxious about what others might think of me? What if they think I'm a failure? What if I'm a fraud? What if this doesn't work? These anxieties, they are the pathway to a self focused crippling of your soul. I think this is why he goes to anxieties. It's a little bit of a weird to jump, right? Have humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, cast your anxieties on Him. It can seem a little bit odd, like, well, why does he go there psychologically? And I think the point here is, it is your anxieties, especially in times of temptation and suffering. Would anyone believe me that in times of uncertainty and difficulty and suffering, when you're being sinned against or the world seems out of control, is it possible that anxieties have more of a potential to grow and to fester during those times? I think yes. And Peter knows something about the human soul. He knows that when we are caught in the web of our anxieties, it will be difficult to escape with true love and humility toward others. So, in the middle of a crazy world, it is crazy, they're about to die, one of the best things they can do is just say, God, here's what I'm afraid of and I'm going to give it to you. I'm releasing myself from needing to know the answers to this, to figuring this out, to having all the things that I think I need to have, and then trusting that He cares for you. What wonderful little phrases in the Bible. He cares for you. He cares for you. He cares for you. He doubles down on this later when He says, in Christ, this glory we have in Christ, God Himself, why do you have to include Himself Why not just say God will restore? There's a personal nature to God, an attentiveness He knows. You're not going to get a generic salvation. There's not one bit of your worrying, not one detail, not one scenario you're imagining in your head that God has not taken account of and will redeem, restore, confirm, establish in you. You get specific and powerful grace. He cares for you, for you. He Himself We'll do this, he's going to say later in 1 Peter chapter 5. So one of the ways that you can be proud and maybe not even know it is to be constantly worried about you. Constant worry is a kind of pride. I think we just need to say that. So instead he says, be humble. Then he goes on in verse 8, and maybe this is another way of pride and maybe more obvious. A kind of pride is to say, I'm not needy or vulnerable or weak at all. I got this. I don't know why everyone else worries. I never worry. There can be a kind of pride that says, I am strong. And that he says to avoid in verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's used this phrase before, be sober-minded. Have good perspective. I think he literally means don't just uh, self-medicate the world away through food or drink or escape or whatever it is that you're tempted toward, but be sober-minded. Keep a watchful mind. Whatever it's going to take, keep a watchful mind. And then he says something that's quite devastating. Here's some reality. This will snap you to it. This will wake you up from your stupor. There is a devil. Isn't that amazing? There is a real adversary, a real Satan, a devil. One of the biggest changes of the progressive Faith of the Western world is to relegate the spiritual world to a kind of make-believe, Halloweenish kind of "ha ha, isn't that fun?" understanding of things. The Bible never allows us this this ability. Peter himself says, "No, no, no. There's a devil, and he's real, and he's there, and then he just keeps making it worse." In the in the phrase, it'd be enough to say your adversary, the devil. But this devil is then prowling around. He's on the move. He's active. And then of all the descriptions he says, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. Would have been better if it's the devil prowls around like a chihuahua. You have a dog in your neighborhood that just yips and yaps constantly. You know the dog that is prowling and yelling at everyone and acting like the toughest thing in the world. But you're just so comfortable because you're like, I I would kick this dog into the moon. Like it's that kind of thing. He doesn't use chihuahua. He says, the devil who is real is prowling around on the move like a roaring lion. Well, but is the roaring lion just like a zoo lion? You know, like they train the lions. If they poke them a certain way, then they just roar. But they're really mostly safe. Except for that one time when the lion ate the magician guy or tried to. He says, no, 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 it's not like that. There's a real devil... He's your adversary. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to eat someone, maybe you. Now, here's what's interesting about this phrasing and about this illustration. Sometimes the imagery of the Bible is lost on us because we live in a, in a modern world. Here's a couple things that we know for sure. I've never interacted personally with a lion. I know there was a Netflix special thing Uh, Something around people all of a sudden we're super fascinated by tigers and stuff, right? I don't don't know all the impact of that, and if it's a horrible, horrible thing, I apologize. I'm speaking completely somewhat out of cultural uh, ignorance. But we don't have a lot of experience, save whoever those weirdos are. We don't have a lot of experience with massive cats like this. We have created little coves of cities and suburbs where lions don't exist. We're not in the cradle of of North Africa or this region where they might have been a problem. We go to a zoo where they're conveniently behind bars. But here's the reality of the imagery of the Bible. Peter is borrowing something that people would have likely seen in real life. There were Christians cast into the middle of the Colosseum and for sport and show, forced to fight hand and fist with roaring, prowling lions it is likely that Christians, many of them reading this, would have had firsthand knowledge either hearing or actually witnessing the blood of the saints dripping from the mouths of lions. And so, Peter says, Don't be so proud as to think that you're above this kind of thing. There is a spiritual battle, and you can be and will be resisted or pursued by the devil. He tells us, here's how you're going to resist this. We resist him. How? Well, I'm supposed to be humble first, but how do I resist a prowling lion? You stand there firm in your faith. He says, stand there firm in your faith, knowing that same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is a godly kind of comparison. There's an ungodly kind of comparison I tell my boys all the time. Comparison is a root of misery. Stop worrying about them. This is a kind of godly comparison. This is a compassion. This is a coming alongside others who are suffering in the same way, and it will allow them to resist the devil. How? They resist the devil by remembering their faith, by remembering who God is, remembering that Jesus has overcome the world, Remembering that the promises they have are sufficient to hold them and keep them. You know what's really profound, countercultural in a crazy, upside down changing world? Just don't change. Just keep your faith. Just remember truth and believe it. Just keep on keeping on. Just be faithful. Just show up like you used to show up. Stand firm. The devil prowls around and says, change everything, it's not working. He says, run, you can't just stand there. And Peter says that in the midst of uncertain times, the best thing to do is to say, you know what? I'm staying. I'm in Christ and there's nowhere else to go. Remember that passage when Jesus turns to the disciples and says, well, why are you still here? Everyone else abandoned me. And they say... You you alone have the words of life. Where else would we go? There's nowhere else to turn. For those who are in Christ, there's nowhere else to go. The devil may prowl. Others may sin against us. The whole world could fall apart. There's nowhere else to stand. So Peter says, resist by standing firm. And it's once we've stood. After we've suffered for a little while, there's that phrase again, this proper time in verse 10. I, wish, I think we all wish it would say, and after you've suffered for four seconds, we don't know how long a little while is, but after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, what a phrase, all goodness, all merit, all unmerited favor in the world, God is God of all of those kind of graces. Saving grace in Jesus, yes, but the grace of wonderful home-cooked meals and the grace of love of parents and the grace of sport and the grace of beauty in the world, all grace, common and otherwise, the God of that kind of grace who has called you, remember who you are. This is how you stand firm. You remember who you are. He called you to His eternal glory in Christ. He will personally, will Himself, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you You know, the amazing thing is both about humility and being established as Peter experienced these personally. You might as well have nicknamed Peter in his discipleship Peter the Proud. How often Jesus said, let me wash your feet. No, no, you don't need to wash me. No. How many times Jesus said, here's what's going to happen and Peter tries to rebuke him and say, that'll never happen. How many times Peter tries to stop the plan of God? How many times he put his foot in his mouth? He might as well have been Peter the Proud. And he is humbled because he ends up rejecting Jesus multiple times. And then in moments of sweetness, and moments of care, Jesus himself restores and confirms and strengthens and establishes him as the rock of the early church. Peter knows what he's talking about. It is God who will come. It is God who will care. It is God who will restore you. And ultimately... No matter how much the devil rages, no matter how much the world, there's that phrase in the meaning of Psalms that says, the nations rage against God. And that's what I feel like sometimes. You ever just get overwhelmed by the world and just everything feels like raging? Maybe I'm just a parent of very talkative pre-teenage boys. I'm just like, just shut up, just be quiet. Just raging, everything feels raging. And one day God will come and He'll put an end to all of the raging all the anxieties, all of the difficulty of the world, and he will take total dominion forever and ever. And this is enough to make Peter say almost prayerfully, Amen, so be it. Temporal suffering, a little while suffering, in the right time will give way to only bright, eternal, and perfect rule. All the promises of Jesus that are here and now but not fulfilled perfectly will be yours eternally in him. And he ends again by this same thing. Stand firm, he says in verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And then he says in verse 14, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Which is a wonderful thing to say to people who are not experiencing peace in their real experience of the world. But here's the promise. This is what we have. In a swirling world, in a nutty world, in an arguing world, in a contentious world. You will be tempted, every man for himself, get what you can get. Look out for you, take care of you, don't worry about them, everything's just so dangerous anyway. You'll be tempted not to love, you'll be tempted to pride, you'll be tempted to give up and think that God has abandoned, that none of this is worth it. And Peter says, here's the key, here's the goal, here's the gift to the world, and what you need in your soul. Humbly stand firm. Humbly stand firm. Let's pray together. God, I admit, uh, just a feeling of anxiety at times, a wondering if everything needs to change, or if this somehow means something, if there's some special code in my circumstances. I admit a kind of self-obsession at times. And I pray that you would humble me and humble us. Help us to see that you're ruling, that you care for us, that you've overcome the, the prowling one. And I pray that we would not offer an anxious, proud presence to the world. To a world that is bitten by and pushed around by sin and tragedy and fallenness. Help us to offer to that world a humble, firm resting in you. And God, we're thankful for. I, I do pray, whatever the right time is, the proper time, we pray that that would come soon. Come, Jesus, and rescue. Put to rest the warring of the world. Put to rest diseases and racism and hate. Put to rest contemplation and need to position ourselves. Ultimately, once for all, kill the the pride of this world. Come and have dominion forever and ever. That's our prayer. We long for that day. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.